Welcome back to 64, a chess podcast. I'm your host, David, coming at you live from the great state of Illinois. Joining me on the podcast is a prolific chess ball author. Please welcome to the show, uh, National Master Elijah Logozar. Welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks. Yeah, it was uh, pretty cool. Uh, David, nice to meet you, too. Yeah, I've been trying to do this for a while. As you know, I took a break from the pod um, suddenly, and uh, but I'm glad we're doing this now. Uh, mm-hmm. I have counted the amount of courses you've worked on and... I think the ones that you've authored that are purchasable, I think it's like 11 plus I think uh, it's like 15 or 16. Wow. On, but, and then uh, one on. but I was going to say like uh, th- that's with you. I know you also have collaborated with other people, right? So that would be a lot more. So I, yeah, I have two courses uh, p- uh, published with Feeding Master Sean Vibbert, The Secret Life of Brooks and The Secret Life of Kings, 300 Spartans. That was a fun one. He's a friend of mine from Vanderbilt University. And I have two courses with uh, International Master Yakov Norowitz, uh, Budapest Attack. Sorry, that's the most recent one we're working on, a Budapest Attack with 94, which has not come out yet, Gajorowitz. Um, potentially other courses in the future. But the ones published already were the uh, Stonewall Attack for White, which uh, with Cheesecake, and also the uh, Caracon Attack for Black, uh, Bronstein Larson Variation. Other than that, I think there's 11 or 12 uh, courses on my own for uh, chessable that's uh the yak attack yeah yak attack because <laughs> uh, we keep yakking on and, and the cheesecake was pretty good too i mean uh the, the actual cheesecake i i ate cheesecake during the videos <laughs> that's crazy so you know we know which which course uh which course to buy to see we keep, cheesecake it's getting crazier and crazier sean and yakov are like elijah you might be going too far but they got in the hang of it soon enough with the bowling ball attack and you know the the ferguson gambit when in doubt sack your queen as they say and who knows whatever other memes there are but i mean chess is basically a meme, a meme at the end of the day uh, if you now, know what i mean now um how did you get started writing chessable courses i mean obviously you've written and you've worked on like over a dozen chessable courses like how did that story start does it start at the beginning of chessable like how, how yes. does this yeah yeah so basically chessable was new and so i joined the website and there wasn't really anyone there and neither was i i got bored so i went somewhere else um but then my friend yorn uh he was about he's now 20 2100 now yorn Damon and austin from uh texas a friend of mine an old rival back in the day he like yo uh, elijah uh, check out chessable it's getting pretty good i'm like all right bet let's go back on chessable and i'm like okay this seems to be a pretty cool place to study Maybe I'll put some of my own opening analysis there. And and so I was studying some courses on iChess.net, like Grandmaster Raphael Yeto, Sicilian Night Orphan. It's like, well, if I convert this to chessable, I can drill these lines and summarizing these notes would probably be good for me. Um, and, you know, it was kind of new. And I'm like, you know, I was talking to a bunch of people. It's like, uh, hey, chessable, can I publish this stuff? And they're like, hey, you should ask Raphael first. I'm like, oh, okay, bet. So I went on chess.com and they're like, hey, Raphael, can I uh, use your lines? And he's like, sure. And Chessable's like astounded because they thought I have to offer him a 50% revenue share for that. And I just asked him and he gave it to me. Um, and then I'm like, okay, okay, you want to endorse it for 25%? Here's what you need to do. And he's like, okay, let's do it. And then he sent me some new lines. And this was maybe six years ago. And Chessable was pretty new at the time. I was maybe 1,715 or 16 years old. And and then I realized, okay, this isn't that hard. So I just uh, kept doing it mostly for my own research when I was interested in something. And, you know, being connected to the community offers really great feedback for explaining better and whatnot. So you've watched, uh, you've actually like basically been like an insider. I know, you, I guess, I know you work to some degree for Chessable, but you've actually, you've seen it grow like <laughs> at every, both as like a fan and as a writer and now somebody who like writes courses for them. Exactly. I was one of the original authors there. And I remember we, me and David Cramley used to email back and forth all the time. I probably have 50 to 100 emails there. And some years ago, he mentioned an email to me, like it seemed like Chessable was almost made for me or something like that. But I think part of that may have to do with I was so up to date with their features because I was trying to use them as an author 
that I would be like, hey, this uh, this new editing mumbo jumbo thingamajonger uh, doesn't seem to be working properly. Can you can you help me out with that? Or can I have some new shares? I want to give this to a friend. And 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 they were so responsive, so supportive. It was just so natural to keep working with them. And uh, and now Geert is like that too. And he became CEO. And um, yeah, we go way back too. Uh, so when Chessable started, it was, as I remember, it was created by John Bartholomew, right? Uh, John Bartholomew and uh, David Cramley, uh, sort of see. I don't. I think they're like uh, the co-founders. I don't. I think John may, might have been primary. They they gave me a Christmas card like three or four years ago from Europe. I still remember that. I was That's like really six, sweet. sixteen or seventeen. They signed it. I think I lost it in the move from Austin, Texas, or Round Rock, Texas, to uh, Nashville, Tennessee, or Spring Hill. But I still remember that. Wow. They were so considerate. Now, like the what you said, you're working on the Fajerowitz uh, course right now. Yeah, with Yakov Norwitz. Um, I don't know when we'll be finished, but Yakov's definitely looking forward, and we put like an hour or two in yesterday. Now, why are you encouraging people to play the Fajerowitz? Well, it's not my opening; it's Yakov's opening. So, <laughs> here, here I want to explain what I mean by that. So, I'm like a theoretician. I'm like, all right, mumbo jumbo, long analysis, slightly better for white. Good. All right, sounds good. Let's do some seek the truth with all that. And so Yakov will be really, really instructive for me to work with because his approach is not necessarily very concrete, but his approach is also, well, it's not the type of positions that needs to be very concrete for the most part. And he got to like a 3000 chess.com blitz, for example, without hardly any computer analysis. And since he's played something like 30,000 blitz games against IMs and GMs in these lines, he kind of knows what works. And so I can be willing to admit that, hey, in such and such concrete variation, uh, very, very precise move order, uh, white may be somewhat better. But in practice, I've been having quite a lot of success with it because like, I'll just say straight up, even though I don't remember exactly how white needs to play in all the lines to get the advantage, it seems that a3 and queen c2 compared together seems to be the only way for white to uh, try to refute the Fajorowitz uh, Budapest. Uh, not to say that the other ones aren't doing it, but to say that they, uh, at least from as far as my analysis so far, have been pretty unconvincing to the sense that black either uh, has enough counterplay or is getting an equal endgame by winning the pawn back or something rather similar to that that seems like a playable opening to me. And in practice, people who've been playing a3 and queen c2 against me, while those lines are very sharp and the queen often gets uh, trapped on like uh, well, maybe like the hit with bishop f5 and some discovered attack, white has to play very precise very early and my opponents have not managed it for example there's this local player ryan and great respect to ryan like his uh online rating is uh showing him to be underrated over the board when he's at his best he's maybe 1900 uscf or 2400 chess.com blitz we were having a bunch uh we were having a bunch of uh, games for example in d4 or d5 where i was playing my normal repertoire as black and i was getting equal positions or even sometimes worse positions because i would overpress trying to make things sharp um like he would play some sort of Catalan and I'd play without C4 and I'd play like an early B5 or something and then take some risks. But then against his uh, most recent three games in the Budapest with 94, I've won in under 25 moves uh, with a big attack and he was playing critical Queen C2 in at least one, if not two of those games. And that hasn't been the only time something similar has happened. So I'd say uh, the 94 Budapest seems to be um, reasonable for Blitz and Rapid. I don't know if I would recommend it for FIDE 2000 plus and slow chess. Maybe under some circumstances, I would need to do more theoretical research, but probably not. Um, at least not with confidence. People would have to make their own judgment call. And Yakov's idea that, hey, you can um, you can play very typical ideas. For example, in the bishop f4 lines, there's g5. In the lines where you uh, there's often bishop before check, you trade all the pieces, and then you take the e5 pawn, and there's some uh, equal positions with some very typical endgames that you can often get. Um, there's often castle and queenside variations, and in the e3 lines, there's often enough counterplay. And so uh, it's definitely a very instructive opening for sure. Now, I want to just... Rewind before I continue. Uh, do you say that uh, 1900 USCF is about 2400 Blitz online? Well, no. I mean, my opponent, Ryan, was, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. he's one of those teenagers who can move instantly. And um, in his case, that was true. 
Because that, that would have made me very sad <laughs> to hear. It's like, no, no, it's actually 2,800 blitz equals 1,400 USC. Just kidding. Yeah. My brother, my, my brother Gus, uh, he got, he's 1,400 USCF right now, roughly. And he got his chest.com blitz to almost 2,000, his bleed chest bullet to 2,250 or so, and uh, blitz to almost 2,200. And he's also um, able to solve uh, Agar with decent accuracy, Debretsky with decent accuracy sometimes. Uh, he got to 5,000 on the tactics trainer. And all this progress in about two years as an older teenager, to be fair, he's basically a sandbagger in that he never plays tournaments and he's extremely diligent and studies like three hours a day and uh, quite often and has almost 10 million points on chessable and is extremely logical and whatnot but you That's know crazy. there's a lot of smurfs out there for sure yeah yeah i play online every now and then. actually um i reached my all-time rating guy today I'm very happy about it nice was that 2100 you tweeted yeah. about that 2106 immediately went to twitter i've been i've been chasing that probably for 16 months i think well nice job yeah, it took took a long time. It's it's funny how like chess improvement works too, because like uh, I wasn't doing anything different from what I normally thought I would do. I just felt like I'm just seeing stuff I wouldn't normally see playing actively, you know. So it's cool. Yeah, sometimes it's like a shift in mindset. Sometimes a lot of things kick in at once. Sometimes it's like you make a lot of progress, but you put pressure on yourself, and then once the pressure drops off, you perform better. And Yakov Norwitz would like talk to me about how like he'd go to the gym and just be in a good mindset, and I'd be like plus fifty to hundred points. I also highly suspect that like um people would sort of assume that skill is a given and it's entirely within the psyche of the individual, but I'm not at all convinced that this is the case based on recent research uh, uh, pairing of both attachment theory, uh, secure-based concepts, uh, uh, observing my own uh, my own psychology, um, as well as Jordan Peterson's idea of, uh, of the regulation of perception, uh, for Vicky as well, but that's very complicated. All that to say is we're embedded in a, both a social and an actual world that greatly influences how our, our quality of experience and our how stressed we are, how much energy we have, and that will influence the degree of which we're able to naturally pay attention and give our best game. Chess improvement is not the same thing as performance optimization. You can improve your ability uh, without your performance necessarily going up because of life factors that influences your ability to actually apply your skill, but then you develop your intuition and your roadmap and your pattern recognition and, and your thought process, and to borrow my mentor David Malliron's terminology, and so sometimes a lot of things come together in terms of actual skill gains, and other times your skill gains are already present, but then life circumstances allows you to apply it more effectively later. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, I, I think I think that's that's probably true from my experience too. Like, mm -hmm. it's 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 tough to find like a like a correlation between. Um, <laughs> well, for me, yeah, I feel like actually if I'm having a really bad day, I tend to play chess better. Like maybe it's just like a anger release or something. But nice, nice. Yeah. Um, you said you were about 1700 when you started writing on chessball. Obviously, now you're a national master. So, like, what, mm -hmm. um, what role did like the chessball writing play in your your own chess improvement? A big role for sure. My openings got a lot stronger. I learned, I, you know, practiced researching and so forth. But it's also really hard for me to sort of say. Like, I guess I earned 40 million points on chessball and probably studied about 40 courses there. That maybe has a has a role. Um, maybe 10 or 15 million on overstudy, and and I have perhaps 20 or 30 courses in progress that I haven't published, so many of which are almost finished and just are waiting for the video course. I was having some studio issues. So I guess that um, probably is a big role, but I also don't know how to measure this for a couple of reasons. One of which is I wasn't actively playing tournaments for the most part between 1700 and 2200. I was mostly playing online and focusing on study, and I was pairing this chessable with a massive amount of reading. So it's hard for me to pinpoint exactly what caused which results, uh, first of all. And second of all, because I'm still a blitz specialist. So I don't know if my USCF uh, peak has necessarily caught up to my... Um, my maximum ceiling, but that would, of course, take, you know, getting playing a lot of tournaments, optimizing thought process, improving my calculation and whatnot. And I have been sort of going through a personal crisis recently that I sort of stepped out of. And so I've been playing tournaments more for fun, and that's led to some really inconsistent results. 
But when you are, uh, I guess, like, how long did it take you, like, let's say after you started writing for Chess Bowl to, like, actually get the National Master title? I guess, like, three or four years. Oh, nice. So you you got it fairly recently then. Yeah, I guess I earned it when I was, like, 18 or 19, and I was maybe 15 or 16 when I uh, started writing on Chess Bowl. Do you remember which tournament you got it at? I think it was playing a local event in Nashville somewhere, and I don't remember exactly the name of the tournament, but it was some G45 event, and I played against this, like, uh, FIDA candidate master, or I don't remember exactly who, or maybe it was national master, it was just some guy who flew in, and after the tournament, his rating was about NM, and he played the Scandinavian, which, of course, I was very happy to see. You're not, a, you're not Team Scandi? Of course I'm Team Scandi, uh, in the sense that I want my opponents to play it more. <laughs> yeah, I used to play the Scandinavian. And then I played the Karakana, and now I play the French. So I got the, the three the three siblings there. You sound like an ideal opponent in that sense. Oh, well, yeah, you probably would kill me in a variety um, of... And if I tease in that way, it's an invitation to challenge, which pushes me to research harder, and so forth and so forth, which is part of the reason for making these courses. Interesting, yeah. Um, yeah, so like uh, you said, you're working on a Fajaris course. What other... You said you have, like, what, 15 courses <laughs> in the works? How do you actually prioritize like writing and probably more than that like like how do you how do you prioritize like one course over the other like like i guess what's your like workflow look like then if you have all these courses Uh, most of them are just old courses that were almost finished and i was planning on just recording them all back to back and finishing really quickly but that didn't happen because um life circumstances paired with studio issues i assumed it would be easy and then it just didn't get done Uh, other things to sit flip to the back and, and in the meantime I recorded a couple of courses of the Sean and a couple of courses of the Yakov because they're like hey I had co-authors that were friends that were interested in the same thing as me so we just schedule their calls naturally and then they come over and it'd be the most natural thing to just record with them and, and Chessable has a video team and so they just organized that and it just fit into my lifestyle very naturally but it was still only four courses in like a couple a couple years or something mm-hmm. um, regarding more recently what my workflow has sort of been is find co-authors who, uh, who are ready to work with me uh, and then get it done and um, also regarding other courses that I've done, I think there was like Rubenstein Bishops, there was, um, which is a 40,000 words course on attacking with the Bishop pair. There's a, um, I made that one some years ago. There was a Berlin course with International Master Yuri Krikon that's about 85,000 words, which is basically finished. There's a Crush the Semislav course with a, a National Master William Sedler, which is basically finished. And uh, like, it, it's like w- workflow is, it's hard for me to answer that question because I don't have a steady workflow. And when I'm having energy to get going, I can get a, um, outrageous amount done in a short period of time because I can just immerse into chess. Yeah, basically, long story short, is I have a bunch of courses in progress and my workflow these days is only starting to build, build momentum again. But when I used to live with my parents, I was able to just work on chess all the time. And so whether this is studying books or whether this is working with co-authors or whether this is making my own courses, I could just work 80 or 90 or 100 hours a week and I would do that. Uh, for And that, and I was just used to chessable so I could get a lot of content done. For example, I'd be playing some recent local quad and be like, a couple of my opponents are playing the Taimanov, so I'll just immerse in the Taimanov. Two days of research later, I have new findings, and then two weeks of editing later, I have a course. And it doesn't even need to be two weeks. Like, Crush the London was six or seven days or less than that as a 17-year-old, and Crush B3 with E5 was two or three days in Canada, again, as a teenager, and now I'm more efficient. So it's like, um, work. it's just like immerse, 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 and also these days find co-authors and get going. Um, maybe I could do better and uh, find a more professional workflow, because I really have a lot of things that I want to get done, and people have been asking me to for a long time. I think the main thing for me right now is video courses in the sense of if I can organize that and finish the courses that are almost finished and get that approved, pair, uh, um, coordinated with the co-authors and especially video staff, which everyone seems to want to more or less, then um, I might just end up publishing a, a, a ridiculous amount of content back to back. It's highly plausible that at my best I could publish in the next year um, more than I've published ever total. Um, yes. 
is uh is like working on chessable cores is that like your primary occupation right now yeah i guess that's right that's right i don't have a huge amount of lessons right now i, I could maybe advertise more well you got a place to advertise your coach right so <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess i i advertise on chess.com as a official coach there and on lee chess as an official coach and i have my website and maybe some other places too but yeah i'll drop i'll drop your uh your coaching link in the in the description for those of you guys who are interested in maybe getting some coaching yeah thanks uh, uh Free, free trial lesson and then a $45 an hour after that as of now. That's a pretty good rate, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing, one or, one or two more things about Chessable. Uh, as you know, Chessable was was purchased. Uh, well, I guess Play Magnus Group really was purchased. But um, mm-hmm. have you seen that um, kind of acquisition impact your, your sales in any way? I haven't really been paying attention to that. If I was paying more attention, I'd probably actually publish the courses that are almost finished. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, I guess... Probably it impacted a little bit, but again, if I'm thinking about, oh no, I lost $100, maybe I should think, oh, let's finish those five courses that are approved and just need this little final touch. Um, yeah, I don't know if procrastinating was the most rational thing there, but I wasn't publishing courses because I wanted to make money primarily before because I lived with my family. I was motivated by chess for its own sake and research and quality and truth. Um, and so like money was a side concern. And um, now that I need to pay the rent, that is not as much of a side concern now, I guess. <laughs> So, so you your work on chess is uh, motivated by the search for truth. That's like one of the hardest quotes I've ever heard. That's like that's an all time quote right there. Um, thanks. Um, I guess <laughs> I might have taken that too far at times because otherwise I would have made money by publishing my content. I have probably well over one hundred fifty thousand words of edited, uh, more or less approved content that could just could could have gone out years ago. But I just kind of oh distracted by the latest chess book and then you know forgot. Wow. Now, um, I I want to also, you know, how I actually, actually became familiar with you was uh, I saw this, uh, I think it was a photo on Twitter about a year ago of you skydiving. And... Oh yeah, yeah, that's oh, so much fun. <laughs> well, I don't know if fun's the right word, but go on. <laughs> and uh, it was with uh, Grandmaster Tiwar Gureyev. Yes, indeed. Who uh, apparently loves skydiving, and uh, I have mentioned him on the podcast before as. Uh, and also, I I did commentary a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about because he he joined this tournament last second, and he has nice like sense. the record for most blindfold games at the same time. I think it's like sixty something. Uh, uh, forty eight the last time I checked, but possibly it's gone up since then. Yeah. Oh, is it forty eight? Well, yeah. Well, I, <laughs> that's still crazy. That is still insane. Um. Yeah, but it, you guys are actually you guys have become friends. So I was wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about your. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your uh, your relationship with Tibor. So uh, I guess I met Timur about uh, one and a half years ago, maybe slightly longer than that at the World Open. And I was dragged along. I did not want to go to that tournament. No, I really, really wanted to go to the tournament, but I did not want to go. And here's what I mean. So it's like I was I just recovered from COVID. I was so tired. My finances were not in great shape because I was sick for a while and whatnot and 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 so forth. But I already told my brother Gus and my friend Joseph Trulson we're going to go. And, and so I'm like, no, I can't go. I can't go. But they're like, no, we're dragging you along. And they had all this fake blackmail, uh, um, fake blackmail uh, cutout newsletter from the Chinese government and all these email <laughs> leaks and all these other pranks. And, and then Joseph loaned me the money. And I'm like, fine, I'll go. And then it was so epic. And it was it was a blast. Anyway, Timur was there. And we uh, I was already a big fan of Timur because, well, first of all, he's a crazy, awesome chess player. Second of all, he's pretty eccentric in a good way. And I like that because these days everything is too politically correct. And it's more fun to just say what you want and of course um that, that there is some exact when i say things like that i'm inviting challenge john bravicki would talk about this as opponent processing there's different perspectives on things and if i hide my point of view then we don't actually explore as much that's part of my approach to chess including with chessable just say the bold thing and then invite challenge because then we both learn more 
Okay. Anyways, um, oh yeah, I'm, I played Teamer in the Blitz event, and um, that was fun. I played absolutely insane, even though I had crazy normal options that were fine, and probably that uh, he enjoyed that a lot too. I just shoved the Rook Pawns down the board and stuff in moderately sound ways. Um, to be fair, it was kind of typical. Um, but anyways, then afterwards, we're like chatting a little bit about training and stuff. I met up with Mark Cobb. We, we ended up traveling later too. And then Teamer was like uh, challenging people to Blitz, and he just sort of casually challenged like, we'll play some Blitz, 20 bucks a game. I'm like, all right, bet. And then we played, and um, he barely edged me out with like four or five seconds left in like even positions or something like that. And uh, maybe he appreciated that. Anyway, Teamer's a super, or at least had some had a good time. Teamer's a super friendly guy. Um, I sort of went with this intensity of, I used to, I was studying chess 80 hours a week. I'm back from COVID. Uh, let's go. And I was just like also was listening to whatever uh, ideas he had. And um, we were sort of vibing together, I guess. And um, what happened after that was I dropped out again because I wasn't supposed to be at this tournament. I was recovering. I needed to get my uh, my life together. And so Teamer was inviting me to the, the places because he was a friendly guy. And he's like, hey, you want to go to Russia for this chess tournament? You want to... Uh, whatever we want to analyze some chess here. We want to look at some ideas, and um, I, I mostly said uh, yes to the analysis. But other times I'm like, I can't go, I can't go. And um, but thanks for the offer. And and sooner or later I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should start accepting one of these. Um, so uh, then I, my friend Mark Cobby had been texting me, and I was, I, I was, my life was so out of control. And so, in some senses, there's abundance, but there's also this. I was kind of out of control and had to say no to a bunch of things because it felt too risky at the time, and I didn't really have the energy. Um, but then I'm like, well, what happens if I just start saying yes to these opportunities? And with Mark Cobb, for example, um, he was like, hey, you want to like meet up for the Karpov School of Chess in Kansas? And I'm like, I just put that off for a while. And then I checked my text and like, hey, Mark, I, I don't know if I can help you the way that you want me to, but I can, um, but I might be able to. So he here's where I am. Um, what do you think? And he's like, let's fly over to Kansas. And I'm like, maybe. Um, um, and actually, I'll pick you up. And then he picked me up and he met up with Teamer and we all coordinated something and um I guess me and Timur were on the same wavelength with a lot of interests, and I happened to be available at the time, and you know, I had a few, enough money in the bank account to pay for my way, at least for now, and he seemed to be being super generous, and that was um, pretty typical of him too, I'd say. So we ended up traveling for like a month, going to tournament to tournament to tournament with Mark driving and Timur making his, uh, I don't know, it was crazy, it was so much fun, and we've done this like two or three times now, and um, we also have some sort of chess projects and um, I mean, I had some energy things and I had some personal things I had to deal with and so whatever. So um, I, I would enjoy a good time with Teamer. We'd analyze some chess, but I, well, there's a lot of our projects and uh, possible ideas that are kind of paused for now, I guess. Maybe he'll initiate later and hopefully I'll have uh, enough energy and so forth. And uh, But like he has like some sort of chess school idea he wanted to do online. There was some sort of big travel trip that he was uh, thinking about doing compared with like Twitch streaming uh, with a bunch of uh, strong players. And there's other projects too, potentially like uh, writing a physical book and annotated games. and. Uh, we talked about some other things too, but I think he doesn't want to pressure me, especially because I was, um, you know, going through a lot at the time, and mm -hmm. um, I've actually been saying no to to teamer opportunities more than he's more than he's more than vice versa. I just, but I, I love working with teamer. It's just that it's just that you know I, I want to be able to pay my way, and if I'm really tired because of this that issue, I, I, there's only so much I can do. But my life seems to be coming together now, and uh, hopefully we'll have a lot of adventures in the in the future. Yeah, sounds like a ton of fun, and and I mean, I I do want to circle back also to the uh, the skydiving because I've never gone skydiving. I never plan on going skydiving. Where you, you know, you get approached to, to go skydiving. Uh, right? I I know Timor is a skydiver. Like, what what's your first uh, thought about that? That was a mix. That was a mix of um, the better my life seems to go, despite all this mumbo jumbo happening in the background. Right. So maybe I should start saying yes. 
oh, and then there was a little bit of peer pressure there. Um, and then the, I was under the impression that they would pay for it. And then there was some miscommunication. And then I tried to back out because I'm scared of heights and can't and couldn't do basic roller coasters. But Mark was already driving me there. And I'm like, ah, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. My friends and family, I'm going to call you. Please help me. Ah, I'm not doing this. Keep my money. Even though I'm on the plane already. But then they're like, hey, let's just go to the back of the plane so that the next person can come out as they push me out. But luckily, I had the instructions. And to be fair, I put myself in the right mindset. I was trying to make myself do it. I knew what I was. I was trying to pump myself up. I was trying, doing some sort of mindfulness. I was tolerating these uncomfortable feelings. I was calling my friends and family for support. I was trying to go on some sort of venture. This is massively outside my comfort zone. Um, and I guess I followed through on it. And um, it's on YouTube now too. Sky, uh, skydiving with Elijah Lobazar. Are you going to skydive again? Probably not. Or at least that's my default option. You ever see that meme that's like, uh, you know, two guys skydiving and it's like, you know, winner gets the parachute. I was texting that to my friend Sean the other day uh, in response to our memes against chess knights because those those pesky non-Euclidean pieces, the worst piece in chess, uh, oh man, oh man. We, we like to meme on knights because they cannot postulate like the bishops and rooks can. Uh, see our course, The Secret Life of Rooks for Details. Um, just apply the postulate, move as far as plausible, but the knights get dizzy. Uh, anyways, they're like, Elijah, the knights are the worst piece. But then you push them out of the plane, they don't have a parachute, but, then, but what happens if they win the parachute? Well, they always lose. So of course, that's an appropriate meme. <laughs> I see. Interesting. Um, do you have a do you have a favorite course that you've worked on? Do you, you've worked on so many? Is there one in particular that that you think of as like, you know, damn, this is my favorite course? I'd say among the courses that I ha have published yet, I really enjoyed making the um, second two thirds of the video course on the secret life of uh, Rooks with Sean Vibbert. I also really enjoyed the video courses with uh, Yakov Norwitz and also the earlier one, the secret life of Kings with Sean. Um, I think part of that is because I, the dialogical format really brought out my energy and also like the mutual strengths was something I really appreciated. And um, I think that's something I want to do a lot of in the future. Regarding the courses I've already published, other than that, I'm not really sure, I guess. I would have to think about that. For courses I have not published yet, I would say it's the Ambitious Berlin for sure. And other than that, maybe the uh, uh, Rubenstein Bishops course that I uh, finished probably three or four years ago. Um, but yeah, I probably should actually publish that. <laughs> Can I ask you, why do you call those courses like the secret life? Like what's what's the whole concept behind those courses? Sure. Well, the secret life of kings is that they're actually good in the attack. Uh, King postulate, secret life of uh, rooks. Um, I, I don't really know. I don't I don't remember, to be honest. Uh, maybe Sean remembers better than me. I think the secret life of rooks originally started as an, uh, a pair between Sean's joke. Moving the rook as far as plausible is almost always uh, the best move. Which uh, and he's really really strong, so I kind of took him seriously, and I kind of saw some reasons for it, and we eventually found some evidence for this in books. But it was mostly just a joke, and and we would do some calculation together, and it, it found out that by paying attention to the long rook moves as the postulate, if you would, uh, then we got better. We found better moves. And I'm like, wait, this is actually working. That's hilarious. And I was trying to do an experiment on intrinsic motivation. So I'm like, okay, we're, we, let's make a course. Let's set the highest standard I could possibly think of. An exhaustive series or course on rooks uh, organized by theme with ridiculous quality annotations and then do as much research as necessary to get it done. And the default option should be free because I, I want this to be an experiment on intrinsic motivation and I don't want to get distracted. Um, so that was sort of my where I wanted to begin. And the idea was I wanted to also... Uh, uh, make postulate a mainstream chess term. So it's a bit of a meme, a bit of a serious instruction. Um, and, and and because I chose it uh, with Sean, we can make this about uh, we can make this about intrinsic motivation, enjoyment and exploration for its own sake. Now, eventually this got out of hand uh, in some sense. Like I found, oh, wait, wait, if you castle the rook postulate and the king postulate come together, wait, the king postulate, king postulate, kings are useful in the attack. 300 king attacks. Uh-oh. 
Elijah, this is getting out of hand. Why do you have 300 king walks in the Rooks course? Don't worry about it, Sean. It's all good. And we moved that to the other course. And I honestly don't remember. We were just brainstorming all sorts of stuff. And I guess it became the secret life of Rooks. Because I guess I guess the secret life of Rooks is that Rooks are actually strong in the middle game. And the secret life of Kings is that Kings can attack. And um, yeah, just um, make sure to postulate in all of your games. The postulate is not only a, a strategy. The postulate is a lifestyle. I was wondering if maybe you did like uh, like a science major in uh, in college because uh, postulate is like very mathematical, scientific phrase, you know. Well, I guess I got postulate partially from my experience with logic and sort of just general awareness mm-hmm. of the term, paired with maybe Sean's. Uh, uh, he has he had a BS in engineering at the time, and I think he's finishing his PhD now. Um, uh, regarding uh, science, I think I've read maybe one hundred or one hundred and twenty or so academic books uh, for fun, I guess, for as a hobby. So maybe that plays a role. Oh, interesting. That's cool. Uh, what, what's, I guess, uh, what's next for you? Like maybe over the board, do you have any, any plans as, like on your own chess career? Not really. And I guess part of the reason for that is, uh, I got, I have so much content I want to publish that that's just first on my radar. Second of all, a bunch of people are inviting me to tournaments and want to like do that with me, but I, if, that'll be easier for me to accept once I actually have uh, my finances in better shape, you could say. Uh, and from experience, I don't really want to worry. I don't really want to worry about results. That's too far in the distance right now. But I'm definitely quite hopeful and have some long-term ambitions for sure. Regarding courses, uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Regarding like possible tournaments, I guess I'm probably going to go to the World Open this summer. Like I'm thinking about doing that with my friend Joseph Trulson and potentially others. And um, if people knew that I was available, which I'm potentially available, but potentially not, because again, I need to make more courses right now. Um, if everyone expected me to respond and just show up with them, I probably have a tournament lined up every few weeks at this point. <laughs> Where Doesn't where is the me. world open this year? Philadelphia. Oh right, is it, it's every year is it Philly? No, right. I think so. Yeah, like John Drippy invited me to go to Vegas with him at the national uh, national open, and I recently went to a North American Open with uh, John Michael and uh, John Michael Cookeroo, and uh, teamers invited me some places and so forth too, and I declined Chicago Open again. Like it's, it's, it was ridiculous because I was traveling all of this and I could not afford it. But I could apparently afford it as long as I had, like, like, I sort of could, but people were generous with me and I had like some money in my, in some savings, but not a huge amount. And, and obviously if I just like publish some content and like have a bit of time to get going, then, and then I don't need to worry as much, but mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of ridiculous. Like, why is there so much opportunity? But why, but, but at the same time, it's like, there's this like, you know, humanness of the limitations of my life. And uh, I, I don't know if I, I should have been able to do a lot of the cool adventures I was able to you know, uh, that I had the honor of participating in in the last year, I, I suppose. Well, also, I mean, you know, you're never going to be this age doing what you've it's been so doing fun. again. You it's know? so much fun. I love traveling the country and hanging out with all these cool people and exploring some chess and going to these tournaments and working on chess courses. And uh, honestly, it's amazing. Yeah, also, I've, I, I caught a travel bug last year. And uh, now I've, I also, I've kind of had to rein it in. Um, like I've been for, in the last... For now, for a couple seconds. For now. In the last month, I'm from, I'm from New York City. I've but I've been to Boston, L.A., Chicago. I was about to go to Boston, but Joseph Trulson, we were going to go to the Boston Chess Congress and then a training camp with a friend of mine, uh, Natasha. Um, actually, well, anyways, we were going to do that, but then, but then Joseph couldn't go because of I don't remember some last minute thing, and Natasha got sick, and so. Um, but that would have been a fun trip to follow up the North American Open. That would have been about a month ago. Yeah, I went last year. Nice. And uh, you ever play the Chicago Open? No, but I wanted to. I, I definitely wanted to go to Chicago, especially uh, since my mentor, David Malarian, lives there now. And uh, Maybe I'll see you there if you decide to go. I'm, I think I'm going to play it this Hopefully. year, actually. It's my yeah, first, good luck. First over-the-board tournament in 
over a year probably, but I finally uh, have some time. So let's get that twenty one hundred rating over the board to match your online, eh? <laughs> I hope so, man. That's the goal. I mean, my USCF rating right now is I think like a thousand two or something. So what? That's ridiculous. <laughs> you got to get that up. Yeah, you're 2100 yeah. online. You're gonna be one of the Smurfs, but you're probably a little older, so you're too old to be a Smurf. You're gonna be like 1700. How old are you again? I'm 23 right now. Yeah. Okay, you're not that old yet. No. So it's okay. I'm. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'm. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I've. To- I think I've told something like this on the podcast, but I like during COVID, I start. I like the Marshall Chess Club opened up, so I went back and I hadn't played like over the board chess in like over a year. And I thought I'm going to go play all these like, you know, under 1200 sections and just rack up money and like get myself something nice. And I don't know. There's one guy who like went on to like destroy an IM in like 20 moves. There's like, it, it, like just in these sections that they're just like these young kids or like under 1200. Yeah. I was, or maybe it's under 1500. I don't really remember. You could look them by. That's you guys, ridiculous. Yeah. There's this my, it, wild. My brother Gus had a similar experience at the World Open where he was trying to hope to win a bunch of money in under like 1300 or 1400 or something. I think it was under 14. And what ended up happening was he played against some kid who had a 2100. And maybe that maybe I played that guy. And uh, that guy didn't even win the section. I mean, it, like there's a lot of just really underrated people. It's like you have to be 1800 USCF level to win the uh, under 1400 World Open sometimes. And that might mean 2100 online. I mean, who knows? It's, it can be tricky for sure. I, I, in Denmark, I played against a dude who was like 1800 Danish rating or FIDE or whatever. I think both, but he was like 23 or 2400 blitz. And I played him, and I mean, he was very good, but I was actually, I was completely winning at one point. Uh, I just made uh, one of the worst moves in my career. I actually was going to make a YouTube video about this, about this game. I made one of the two of the worst moves of my life, I think, in one game, but I was completely winning out of the opening. I did like insane prep. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think there's like a big discrepancy sometimes. Like it's easy to get scared, but at the, at the end of the day, like blitz is not classical, you know? Well, that is true. I would also add that blitz and classical do have very heavy, heavy correlations with each other, especially when people are active and not kids. Kids often knock each other off and then they, then they beat the adults. And so it's like, it's not really fair. There's going to be larger than normal variance bands. And COVID really complicated everything because the statistics got out of whack as the kids became more and more underrated. But based on David Malaren's statistical research and also what I've observed, it seems that people generally don't have a difference of blitz and standard ability more than 400 points worth, roughly speaking, assuming that they're active in both pools. Now, being active in both pools may be necessary for, for this to work properly, but I think the idea is that your blitz ability, roughly speaking, represents your pattern recognition, your fast candidate move generation, and so forth. And your slow calculation is going to be what what you do to optimize that in the slow game. Like you try to um, you slow your thinking for candidate moves, you check your your self and so forth. But like 400 points is roughly three standard deviations or something very close to that, and that's 91% expected score, which is a lot. That's like that's exponential difference in ability. So if it's more than that, that's quite exceptional. Although with kids and without uh, active tournaments these days, COVID and whatnot, maybe that's becoming more and more popular. Uh, so the, sorry to have a or maybe popular is not the right word. Maybe more common to have a rating difference that's bigger than that. But I think that doesn't mean that, they, that they're not relevant to each other. It just means that the statistics need to be updated through a larger sample size. There still is a correlation there. So uh, do you think that Blitz has a more of a correlation than, let's say, Rapid? I don't think so. I think that Rapid will have a closer correlation to standard than Blitz because, mm-hmm. well, 
you have some of that thought process going on. But it also depends on the person, and you can get used to time controls because there's different thinking techniques. Like Daniel Kahneman would talk about this in thinking fast and slow, like system one, system two, you think slowly, you think quickly. If, if rapid may be in between two modes. So if you're not optimized, you may actually switch the modes and confuse yourself. And so that so it can be a little bit trickier to optimize for rapid than standard in some cases. Yeah. But but I think rapid will probably have a closer correlation to standard. It's just that people are rarely active in rapid, whereas people who are active in blitz online tend to be very active. And so you can have some sort of a like a statistically relevant sample size or something. I also think that's... because 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 blitz because blitz needs to be defended more than rapid. People will attack blitz for this or that reason. And I want to explain why and you can ask your question after that. A lot of the elite coaches will say blitz is not uh, important, don't do blitz and they say this for a couple of reasons. One of them relates to their adult students and one of them relates to their kids students. The reason why they say don't do blitz for adult students is because adults tend to not improve at blitz. I'm talking about 25 plus especially very quickly, uh, especially because uh, declining neuroplasticity means that it's harder to actually acquire the patterns and it takes a long time. Also, the slower visualization speed. I'm not saying improvement isn't possible. I'm saying the results come slower and it's very and it can be discouraging to a lot of adults who often want to focus on their slower ability anyway. They get slower, resu better results by learning how to slow down and really optimize their calculation and thought process and play well in a slow game. And so they get better results that way and they're like, oh, blitz is just bad habits. And fair enough, in terms of short-term results, that will be true. And in regards to the kids, the kids will improve with anything. But blitz may actually interfere with their development of a logical thought process because they're quickly uh, because they're developing these bad habits in blitz games and they do not understand habits and uh, are not training deliberately enough to know the difference between a blitz game and a slow game enough to separate the triggers as discussed by, uh, I think it was James Clear in Atomic Habits. That was, you, can, you can train yourself so that blitz does not interfere with your slow chest. Um, that said, blitz is still a very, uh, blitz still does matter. Um, and it can be helpful as a training tool, like for uh, consolidating patterns in terms of fast tactics training, and has been shown under certain select conditions to be highly effective for adult improvement. But uh, I want you, but we can go back to that later on um, if you're interested, and you can direct this with questions. Well, I I forget who I th one of the one of the, like the Indian youngsters. I think his coach was saying that he you know he kind of just plays. Uh... He just plays like that's like, one of the ways he trains is just like a ton of blitz, and it's yeah, worked for him. Kids will get better that way. And yeah. if they train a slow chest, they will get a better thought process. And they really don't need one at that age. But it will help, especially as they approach their teen years. I got uh, from from Peter Svidler, I had on the podcast a couple months ago. I, I He told me this great story about uh, Tani Adabumi. Tani, Tani, he's so much fun. And his parents are so nice. I actually, I, I reached out to Tani's parents a couple of months ago by email. I'm trying to get them on the podcast. So I hope it works. Because um, obviously, I know, you know he's, he has huge aspirations. Uh -huh. But Peter was telling me the story because Peter did a couple of these streams with uh, with Tani about like just, you know, giving him these insanely hard puzzles. And Tani, <laughs> while doing these puzzles, I mean, Peter, I don't, I don't know. I hope I'm not getting this wrong. As I remember, you know, Tani is like playing bullet while solving the puzzles. And, you know, if Peter was like coaching some other kid, he would just be like, you know, what are you doing? Like focus. But he just wanted to see like... I think he was maybe playing time. some Lee Chess or Chessicon Bullet Arena or something like that. And Tani ends up like getting a ton of wins and also solving all of these puzzles like, you know, instantly or almost instantly. Yeah, why not? Uh, and that, that doesn't surprise me very much for a couple of reasons. One of them is I personally know Tani. He's working very hard. We played a couple of years ago and after the game, he would not analyze for more than five minutes because he had to go up and study chess in his room apparently, which is like he's like nine or ten ridiculous um but uh, second of all um when he was doing my puzzle rush experiment um i did this about two years ago with about 85 volunteers he improved out improved everyone because he actively participated in the experiment and because he was younger and of course the improvement in terms of uh, raw gains uh, did scale by age I, I did check that and he managed to peak by seven in 45 days 
he went from like 43 to 51 or 52 in, in three minute uh, peak. Um, and nobody else did that because nobody else was 10 doing that. Uh, they were like 13 or 14 or 15 or 20 or whatever. And yes, it did scale by age. You can check I, uh, the data is public. Um, of course, you know, if you're not active, it doesn't matter. Um, but you, but people were active and so was he. So, you know, when you're young, it has to do with neuroplasticity for fast acquiring of fast patterns paired with visualization speed, which has to do with speed of neuronal firings, as my mentor David Malayan explained. And he was young enough to both have the fast visualization speed and doing a ridiculous amount of tactics training in order to build that raw pattern recognition ability. Also, the kids often learn through play. Uh, exploration and so like these sort of firm limits are probably not uh, as relevant as just them enjoying themselves partially because enjoyment relates to emotional engagement um, and positive emotion positive emotion has to do with attentional broadening and there's all these other um, um, effects but I have lost my train of thought as to the most relevant <laughs> aspect and we can get back to that more later if you have further questions um yeah, I, think, I, I, remember, I remember. I remember the social psychology, the, the secure base. Um, but um, like the, the the criticism and the restrictions by the adult may make may reduce the intrinsic motivation of the child. And if the child feels that they can do things their own way while being supported and attended to properly, then their uh, the attachment system deactivates and the exploratory system activates, which is uh, helpful for um, for study and focus and uh, effortless engagement. Which is one of the reasons why my in my opinion my uh, for um why my younger sister who's um. When she was like three or four, she could focus on chess uh, study for three or hours in a row under the right type of supervision. And of course, because it is effortless when you're to study when your exploratory system is activated, in my opinion, R roughly speaking. I mean, obviously, then we could uh, check with like, well, what happens if you're doing this extraordinarily difficult thing? It's like, oh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, in general. No, that's probably true. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll ask you one last question. You mm -hmm. you your your enthusiasm for chess is, uh, is infectious. Thank like, you. I, I want to go and <laughs> grind some chess courses right now. Let's do it. Um, but, uh, do you, if you had to give like one, like broad piece of advice for people trying to get better at chess, what would you say? Take chess improvement seriously. Um, pay attention to method. Um, and I mean, honestly, that's a very broad question. So, um, it's hard for me to do that. I would say really enjoy yourself. Chess is a game. And if I'm going to walk, like, don't really judge yourself for doing badly or by your own standards. And, and here's what I mean. Like, if you're just walking down the street, you're enjoying a nice walk. You're not going to be judging yourself by walking poorly. But in a competitive environment, it's natural to sit go, oh, dang, I should have done better. But then this unnecessary negative emotion is not more instructive than positive emotion. And the judge only shows up under some conditions. For example, it does not need to show up in, in casual everyday life. So why do it there? And that's a more complicated psychological question. But I would just say, be easy on yourself. Enjoy yourself. Have a good time. Chess is a really beautiful game. Um, do whatever it takes to stay motivated and you can follow your passion. You do not need to do only what other people tell you. But also, especially for adult improvement uh, improvers, take method seriously. Take method tactics seriously. Well, yeah, tactics are very important as I'm learning. I started, uh, I interviewed uh, Grandmaster Noel Studer. Uh, you guys could check that episode out. And I committed to doing 20 minutes of tactics a day. And Good. sure enough, I get like 150 rating points in like a week. <laughs> that's, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. And the only reasons I could think that for that being just, I cannot possibly believe that you gained 150 points of raw ability, but I can believe that you improved your visualization speed enough in a short period of time paired with this confidence and coaching that allowed you to optimize the performance that you already had. So it's like, this would this is possibly similar to when I was a, an older teenager moving to a young adult in terms of bullet chess. My bullet crashed 200 points because my visualization speed dropped as is natural for an older teenager transitioning to young adult. And I was improving my chess. I, I got a lot of new patterns from my studies and, and so forth. It's just that uh, my fast chess went down um, for bullet and my bullet stayed the same. And that's because my application of the patterns that I had declined because it aged uh, as fast, if not faster than the actual pattern acquisition. That said, you can get around that through high volume speed training as I've tested on myself and other people and David's research. And so that's one of the reasons why people who start doing a lot of speed tactics 
um, tend to get really quick results in the first couple of weeks, as I also tested with the Puzzle Rush experiment. Uh, if you continued this, I would expect you not to peak by another 150 points in the next two weeks, and this would be because it has more to do with form. But of course, tactics will help you, first of all, with maintaining visualization speed games, second of all, with uh, developing further pattern recognition ability, and third, this is just a general good habit. Hopefully, you enjoy it yourself as well. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. I'm definitely enjoying it. I I'm going to buy myself one of those, like, uh, when I have a bit more, you know, broke grad student right now, but when I have a bit more cash, I'm going to buy myself one of those nice tactics books, maybe Steps Method or something like that. Something I could just sit with a board and just, you know, every night just do like 20 minutes over the board. I have I have calculation by Agard, but uh, I'm not touching that. That's way too hard for me. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's too hard for you. My brother Gus did a similar book. He was doing uh, positional play when he was uh, weaker than you at Blitz. And so I believe you can handle it now if you want to. Of course, it would take serious effort. And uh, when he, Gus was doing positional play, he would solve six puzzles in an hour and a half uh, for accuracy over speed, and then just detail the analysis of the positions without uh, just the, as Jacob Agard would put it, if you judge your success by your effort, you can always be happy. And so you're going to learn a lot from that book. It's very hard. You can do it when you're ready. You don't have to do it yet, but you definitely are ready now based on your blitz. If you put the, the work in and you go through it very gradually, um, you don't need to do it gradually, but that would probably be helpful. And of course, steps and so forth could be helpful for you as well. And um, personally, I also enjoy studying over the board, but I have not done the steps method yet. Interesting. Well, I, I thank you for the for the encouragement. Maybe maybe I'll be bold enough to do it because I have the book right here. It's in my closet, so yeah, um, might as well. Yeah, but thanks so much for coming on the show. And guys, thanks for listening. Uh, go check out Elijah's courses. I'm gonna link uh, a couple of them. Oh, I kicked my charger out. Sorry. I'm gonna link a couple of those courses uh, down below in the description. I'm also gonna put Elijah's link for coaching if you guys are interested in taking lessons with him. Seems like a great coach. And uh, thanks for listening, guys. And uh, take it easy. See you guys thanks. next week.